You are listening to the Crossroads Community Church Podcast. To learn more about CRCC, including worship times, visit us at crcconline.com. We are in a series called Then and Now, and we're on our final two weeks. You have this week and next week. I'm really excited. This is going to kind of climax this whole concept. And we've been talking about these different characters in God's Word. We've talked about where they were back then, talking about God's Word, how it relates to Christ, and then how does that apply to us now. And this week is a little bit different. It's not your typical character uh, that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at an institution. We're going to be looking at something that you very much are a part of, something that is meaningful to you. Today, what I want to look at is the originality of God's church. I want to talk about what God's church was back then, how it relates to Christ, and then how does it relate to us right now. Because, again, this whole series is founded on the concept of, of our then, somebody's back then is influencing our now. And our personal now is going to end up being eventually somebody's then, and it's going to affect them. So we're going to be all over the place today. I look forward to spending some time in God's Word. We're going to end up in Matthew, uh, spending some time in chapter 16. Uh, but before I do that, I want to read to you where the first concept of God's Word, and he talks about the church in the New Testament but I want to talk about where he ends it. He mentions it two different times that we're going to spend on, but where he finishes is in Revelation. And I just want to tell you this just so you get a little bit of an understanding of where his church and what the purpose is. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. If you know anything about the book of the, the Word, God's Word, we know that the last book is Revelation. It's talking about the second coming. And in the very last chapter, one of the last verses it talks about is it's this revelation to John, and he literally makes the comment that I have given you all of these things so that you, as a church, will know. So it brings up a question like, why? Why is it important for us to know these things? Why is it important that we know that he's coming back? Why is it important that we know the things that are going to be coming up? Well, in order to understand that, I want us to go back to the first time we hear the word church in the New Testament. It's also mentioned in the Old Testament in a different Hebrew word, but we see it in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, and it's in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, going through to verse 19. Listen to these words, and then we're going to dive in. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. Now, before I get to that question, let me give you a little bit of a backdrop. Caesarea Philippi would have been just south of Jerusalem in an area that at this time, Roman influence is really taken over. you got to realize that this is literally around 30 to 33 A.D. We don't know the exact year, but we know that Jesus started his ministry in 30 A.D. As we know that he was 30 years old when he started this ministry, and he did it for three years before he ended up at the cross and then died and rose again. So around this time, Greek influence and Roman influence has really been a big deal. Caesarea Philippi has been renamed. Hence the name Caesarea Philippi, named after a particular king. And there's been a lot of pagan, I mean a lot of idolatry and pagan worship that has hit this particular city. In fact, one of the things that it's really known for that I need to let you know because it will make sense here in a minute as I read, is there was actually one particular cave that, would had, that had a spring that was coming out of it. And it was referred to, because of these pagan gods, and they would go and they would offer sacrifices, but because of this hot spring, this spring that was coming out of this cave, they referred to it as the gates of hell. And so a part of the concept that's going on in Caesarea Philippi is this pagan worship that was going on in this one particular cave 
that's known as the gates of hell. That's going to make sense in a minute, so let's dive back in. So he's in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I believe the same question that Jesus was asking his disciples many, many years ago is probably the number one question that most people are asking in one of the functions of the church. I still believe in the year 2020 that the question that he asked around 30, 31, 32 AD is the same exact concept. People want to know, who is this son of God? Who is God? Who is Jesus? Who do people say that he is? Now, ironically enough, we can get a whole lot from this scripture by the way people respond it. See, I want to be real careful because I know we're in a political season. But most of the time, people will always answer a question based on previous experiences or other things that they've heard. Right? Truthful? False? Does not matter. You can argue this if you want to, but I would tell you, you are a product of your environment. You may not like that, but it is a part of who you are. Now, don't mishear me. God can define your environment. That's what makes having a relationship with Christ so important because he can literally define you and redetermine your circumstances. But prior to that, you're really a product of your experiences and your environment. I'll give you a great example of this. I just mentioned this in Growth Track a minute ago. But we think about God being the Father, God the Father. We're like, okay, yeah, God the Father. Now I want you to think for a minute. For you guys in the room that had an amazing father, you're like, oh, man, yeah, I know what God's like. That's awesome. But for you guys that maybe your father wasn't there that much, maybe your father was abusive, maybe your father left before you ever came into this world, depending on your feelings about who an earthly father is determines how you translate when you think about God being your father. You see what I'm saying? Your environment, your experiences, the things that you hear has a way of, of warping your knowledge and your answers to certain very simple questions. These people are doing the same thing. Jesus is showing up. He sees this Caesarea Philippi. He sees all of these pagan worshiping areas, all these different altars, all these different sacrifices, all these different things that the people are saying is the right answer and the right God and who they're offering sacrifices. And the first thing that he wants to know from his disciples is, man, they have got all these different, like, like they got this Roman god, Pan, who's the god of fertility. They've got this other, like they've got all these gods and this is what they believe that they are. Who do they say that I am? Like what do these people think that I am? Who do they say that I am? And these people, in answer to the disciples, well, you know, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a descendant of Abraham. Like, they go back to the previous history. So they, they had a little bit of knowledge, but unfortunately, they had been skewed by the whole propaganda of what was being pushed there. See, in Caesarea Philippi, one of the main issues, one of the main economies, one of the things that were going on in this time was this aspect of idolatry and pagan worship. This was a place that would be a little bit like, I mean, believe it or not, you know, Vegas wasn't a new idea. There were a lot of Vegases back in the day. Caesarea Philippi, because of some of these pagan gods, 
was known and some of the income was because of prostitutes and different things like that. It was just not a really great place. So they respond with what the people say that he is. The people that don't know him. Now I want to chase the rabbit and I got to be real careful here. I want to encourage you when you start looking for answers that you ask people that have been around the answer. Like, I know some people that right now are asking questions, and they're great questions. The problem is they're looking to somebody to give them an answer with somebody that doesn't have a relationship with that answer. Like, they may sound like they know something, but they don't have the experience nor the relationship with what the question is to give the right answer. That's what was happening here. And then listen to what he says. This is so good to me. He says, okay, verse 15. But he said to them, being the disciples, but who do you say that I am? See, it was one thing for them to have a false answer or an untruthful answer because they didn't know anybody. They didn't have a relationship. But then to turn around and, and it happened where he says, okay, now you've been with me. We've went through the, the Sermon on the Mount. You've went through the healings. You've went through the water into wine. You've seen who I am. Now, who do you say that I am? And then this one guy speaks up. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. If you have a paper Bible, underline these words. Blessed are you. I want you to understand that one of the concepts that God wants you to get in your life is God does desire to bless his people. And a lot of times, the reason why a lot of people aren't sitting in the situation, I love the song that Sam and the guys sang today, that aspect of you are my champion. And that when I open up my mouth, miracles can start flowing out because I have an authority. You know, the reality is, is that God has so much more for us. The problem is, is that we're standing on the wrong side of a confession. In fact, today's message, I literally called it a confession to make. But there was a major confession that took place that is the launching of the New Testament church. And it's when somebody literally said, here is exactly who Jesus says that he is. And Peter said, you are the son of God. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, this is the first time in all of God's canon, that we realize that God himself has taken the form of a human and has entered this world and is starting to be recognized as a part of his holy trinity. In Jesus' confession, listen to what he says. He says, not only are you going to be blessed, he said, Simon Barjona, for, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. The Greek will say Petros. And on this rock I will build, and there it is, the first time in the New Testament you see these words, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when he said gates of hell right there, a lot of times people will translate this and go, oh, you know, if we're doing what God's called us to do, then not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. He's actually referring back to this pagan God I mentioned earlier. What he's talking about is that if you will stand as a church 
on the confession of who Jesus truly is, which is the Son of God, then you will thwart all the confusion that comes with all the other pagan gods and misrepresentations. Why is there so much confusion in our world? Like, which one of these religions is the right religion? Like, oh, well, you're Judeo-Christian. Okay, well, what does that mean? Oh, well, you're Buddhist. What does that mean? Oh, well, you're Muslim. What does that mean? Or Islamic or, or whatever. And then you get into even some of the Judeo-Christian. you got all these different denominations. And didn't that, that get confusing? Like, hey, Mickey, which, which one of those is right? Where does Crossroads stand on that? You know what we stand? We say we're non-denominational. Not non-denominational like we're hiding something, like, hey, we're really this, but we don't want to say it. No, no. We're non-denominational, meaning that we do not align with a particular denomination. We align with God's Word. We believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And we believe every single stroke and word of God. Nobody's going to tell us through an organization or a convention or that, hey, this is what you believe. Because we're going to say, no, we're going to say what God's Word says. And that's what we believe. But it's that confession that literally Jesus replies to Peter, calls him Petros, which literally translates the rock. He says, upon that confession, I will build my church. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute. How big of a deal is who Jesus is to God's church? to the foundation of everything it stands for. I mean, I know a lot of people that have went to a church, and again, this is one of these areas, I gotta be so careful today, because I'm not talking about any one particular, like when we say church, a lot of times we're thinking of different buildings, and a lot of you may be here because you were at a particular building, and something happened, and I know some people that have went and visited a particular building, wherever that building may be, and they say, oh, well, I just, you know, I don't know what they believe, or I don't know what they think, or I don't know what they, whatever. I didn't like the carpet, or I didn't like the seats, or I didn't like the lighting, or that looked like a rock concert, or I, I don't know what it is. But, boy, it's amazing all the different concepts that we'll use when we're trying to determine what God has called us to do that is totally opposite of what the foundation of God's church is. Can I tell you the churches that we co cooperately work with in our community. We work with every church that stands up and says, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Period. We believe in the Word of God. We believe in the inerrancy of His Word. We don't take away nor put anything in there. And we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. When they tell us that, you know what we do as Crossroads Community Church? We say, great, we can work together. Well, what's your stance on baptism? You're asking the wrong questions. Though we know what God's word says and what we believe, the foundation in which God builds his church has always been built on this one simple confession. And so it made me chase a rabbit in my mind while I was studying that took me about five days to get over. What have we done to pervert God's church? What have we done in our American culture that, that's made us, for whatever reason, like we will talk about Jesus, but you almost got to 
look through the smoke and mirrors to see him. Now, y'all are looking, am I the only person that thinks like this sometimes? Like, anybody ever had that, like, like why? What is the purpose of what God has called us to do? What is the purpose in everything that he's called us as a church? See, the church is directly referred to a, it's an actual Greek word, ecclesios, and it's actually referring to an assembly or a gathering. If you go to Hebrews, it'll talk about this. Talk about not forsaking the gathering. Like, we're in a very dangerous time. And one of the things that was out there is there's this, there's this little bit of a, a struggle. There's a struggle going on right now in our society, in our culture, because of this thing called COVID. Now, I want to be very careful with the way I say this. I want you to listen to me. I believe COVID is a very real thing. And I believe it is borderline ignorant to blow it off because what you're doing is you're looking at some people that have literally lost loved ones because of this virus, and you are literally devaluing that, that person's life. I hate it. I hate everything about it. I hate that it was created over in China and somehow got here. I hate how it's influenced different people. I hate the lives that have been lost because of it. I hate some of the things that we do trying to avoid catching it, though I don't mind doing those things because I want to be responsible. And it's one of those things that, I mean, there's not anything about it that I go, oh, man, this is a good, like, I can't stand anything about it. But despite my personal convictions, here's what I know. I know it's real. And I know that, that like, even this weekend, because of some of the things going on, I found myself walking around with a mask constantly. Why? Because I had you on my mind. Like, I didn't want to do the things outside of here that would ever make me, when I see you here, to put you into some sort of a dangerous situation. You say, well, Mickey, well, I don't know if that's right or not right. I don't know what the, listen, I don't know scientist stuff. I'm not that smart. All I know is that I'm going to do everything I can to love you well. And I believe sometimes as a church, that's where we've messed up. Like we have so complicated, just like with this COVID situation, we have complicated what the foundation of God's church is. And let me tell you how we've done that. If I start talking to you and say, what is the church against? Every one of you could start telling me 50 million things. But if I said, what is the church for? It'd almost be crickets. Like we've gotten so caught up in telling people of everything that we're against that nobody knows what we're for anymore. In fact, Here's a rabbit trail. If you want to have a real social media presence during this political time, let me give you a little heads up. Quit being that guy that's screaming and hollering at everybody, telling about everything you're against, and just write a post about what you're for. Because when you're screaming about everything you're against, all you do is come across as a whiner and somebody that complains. But when you show me what you're actually for, then I can look at those things and go, now I'm for that too. Well, I'm against this and ain't nobody going to tell me. That. And you're like, you're, just, you're like a tinter tantrum. You're just throwing a fit. Tell me what you're for. Like, what does that mean? And when it comes to the church, you know what? I think it's the same concept. As we're entering this political season, I think it's extremely important for us to let people know 
This is what we're for. This is the confession in which we stand on. The confession is very simple, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you keep reading, listen to this. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then listen to these words. And Sam and I, he will testify, he did not know the entire message when he planned the worship today. But when you're talking about opening up your mouth, that's a biblical concept. You know where it comes from? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Like Pastor Sam was up here talking about how you have the authority, you have the ability that through a relationship with Jesus Christ, that as his church, as a corporate body, we can petition God and the miraculous can start happening. You say, how do these things happen? Is that like a special thing? Is there some, nothing. What it is that's called an authority that God gives you when you're his church standing on what? The rock. That Jesus Christ is exactly who he says that he is. That was the then, but unfortunately we've distorted it getting to the now, right? So let me help clarify it a little bit more. In order to understand what the then is, let me, let me show you how it relates to Jesus. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. It actually explains to you of how Jesus relates to his church. Not only is Jesus saying he's the son of God and he's the foundation, but listen to what he does. He refers to it as an analogy of people getting married. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. Now, I want you to just pause for a minute. Now, I'm going to talk from a pastoral point. I'm not... I'm not talking from a husband point because this was very challenging for me because I probably fell at this more than I succeed. But from a pastoral point of what God's word says, this is the motivation even in my own life of what God is calling me to do as a husband. What it is saying very simply is Christ, for you, gave himself up so that you could be lifted up without blemish. All the men in the room, look at me for a minute. You know how sometimes you'll be in a conversation with a group of people and your wife's with you if you're married? And everybody's kind of joking around and, and you'll unintentionally say something. It's not degrading. It's not disrespectful. But it just kind of unintentionally makes your bride be kind of the, the laughing part of the, the statement, the joke. You know what Jesus did? Everything that he did was to lift you up. Everything that he did was to make you blameless. Blameless. Everything that he did was to put you in a situation where people would look at you and see you as more than, never less than. There never was a point that Jesus got up and said, let me tell you about my people that I love. They are some rotten people. They are some jacked up people. Man, I tell them what to do and they don't ever listen to me. In fact, they are so horrible that after I created the garden and made everything perfect and said, you can do two things. One, be fruitful and multiply. The other, don't eat of this tree. You know what them knuckleheads did? They ate of the tree. They jacked everything up. 
So much so that I had to kick them out of the garden, and then I had to take the form of Jesus, and I had to die on a cross and raise on the third day. All because of what they did. If they would just learn to do what they're supposed to do, this relationship would go a whole lot better. That, that's in first hesitations. Right after the book of Moses. You know, nowhere in there does he talk about that, does he? The only thing he talks about when he's looking at you is he's talking about, you know what, that's my bride. Anybody that's ever been married, guys, look at me. Sam, little advice. Wedding day ain't your day. It's her day. And us men, you know what we do? We do everything we can to make sure we're at the right place at the right time getting everything ready so that we can stand in the front and when those doors open and that music starts and everybody stands up, we go, whoo, wow, she looks amazing. And it's the most humbling yet joyful, emotional moment of most men's life. You feel totally unworthy to receive what's walking down the aisle, but yet you're totally blessed because you know that what's coming down the aisle is something that you have to spend the rest of your life with. And if you're not careful, what happens? About a week later, when you get back from the honeymoon, life happens. And all of a sudden, you forget the picture of what she was like. And you forget all the things that she's done. And you think all the ways that she's prepared herself. And you think of all the things that she's, and all of a sudden, if you're not careful, you will find yourself devaluing the most amazing thing that God's given you on this earth. I believe that's the best description I can give you of what America's doing to God's bride, the church. They're devaluing it. They're leveraging it to borderline be a business. They're leveraging it for personal gain. They're leveraging it for some sort of an influence because they're trying to, I don't, I don't know exactly what, but we've, we've gotten away from the concept. And Jesus says, listen, when it comes to my bride, the church, I want you to give yourself up for it. Listen to the other words. Jesus actually defines love in these, in these verses. Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one will ever hate his own flesh. But listen to this words. But will nourish and cherish it just as Christ does the church. I had a gentleman one time say, you know, the hardest thing to define is love. If you can never figure out a definition for love, you've really gained ground. Which followed up with me one simple question. Well, that's a great comment. My question is, how do you define love? And the guy looked at me and said, well, it's very simple, Mickey. I define it with two words, nurture and provide. And I started thinking about that. And I was like, well, that's good. Where did that come from? He said, the way that God loved the church. He nurtures and cherishes it. He nurtures and provides for it. 
you say, well, Mickey, what, what's the point of all this? Well, the point of all this is very simple. The then was that Christ was trying to solidify this character that was going to be a central theme of God's word called the church. And he did that by bankrupting heaven and coming in the form of his baby and dying on a cross. And three days later, like his death on the cross was not only for you, but it was for this amazing organization that he would call the assembly, that he would call the church. And here we sit in the middle of COVID. And I'm a little bit intrigued because there's this battle that's raging between people that say, well, do I really need to be there? Like, is it something I need to be at? Now, if you guys join us online, let me pause for a minute. If you're staying away because of medical reasons, health reasons, or you've got some sort of condition, you need to know that we love you, we're praying for you, and that's the exact reason why we leverage every single thing that we're doing so that you can keep joining us online. There's some people that go on vacation, and they like to join us online because they can't physically be here. Again, that's why we have online. But let me tell you why we don't do online. We don't do online so that you will have a convenience so that if you don't feel like coming, that I can just join online. You say, Mickey, what are you getting so mad about? Because I'm a little bit frustrated, not with you, but I'm frustrated with one statement that I've heard in our community. Praise the Lord, it's not come from any of you because I probably would literally lose my mind up here. But they said this, are you ready? Think about this. We've enjoyed online. We feel like we can get just as much out of church online as we can in person. That's the most condemning statement I've ever heard about the church. You say, why? Well, here's a scripture you don't have. It's Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And then I'm going to be done before I get myself in trouble. Starting in verse 24. And let us consider, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, let us not neglect, let us not abuse, let us not walk away, let us make sure. Here's the way we put it, it's in 1 Corinthians. He talks about this body like this amazing body of Christ. He talks about how you're a part of it. But then he ends with these three amazing words. He says, not only are you a part of it, he says, but you are a necessary part of it. You say, Mickey, what in the world is the point today? Are you just like frustrated? No. Are you tired and lacking sleep? Maybe. But it's one of those Sundays that I want to pause for a minute because I want to make sure that you don't miss it. Like, I'm going to finish up this message, not talking about the church, but next week we're going to close out this series with the greatest character mentioned in God's Word. We're going to talk about the one central theme, the one central character of the entire Word from Genesis chapter 1-1 to Revelations chapter 21. There is one major character in which everything revolves around. But we can't get to that character if you don't understand that you're not supposed to do this by yourself.
Like, I'm going to tell you the greatest tool that Satan has is isolation. If you were encouraged by today's podcast and would like to experience other talks, visit us at crcconline.com.